This is the Concealed Carry Podcast, episode 440. Welcome to the Concealed Carry Podcast. I'm your host today, Jacob Paulson, and I am joined by a recurring guest. I, I, I don't know, Andrew, if you've graduated to co-host status, but you've been here a fair ah. number of times. And uh, so I'm, I'm pleased to introduce, once again, Andrew Breka. Well, thanks for having me back on, Jacob. Happy to do it anytime. Absolutely. We're so excited to have you here and to discuss a topic that I think requires having an expert like you uh, here with us. Today's episode, we're really going to dive into something that I think is, um, well, I don't know if gray area may not be the best title, but I've, we're calling today's episode the gray area when you can, uh, oh, geez, I already forgot what the title of the episode is. Okay, here it is. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Uh, today's episode, uh, the gray area when you can threaten or make threats of deadly force with a gun. And this is going to be exciting because I think that we often find ourselves in those situations, or we at least can imagine, uh, theorize situations where we might not feel that the use of deadly force is uh, warranted, but perhaps the display of a gun or the preparation for a potential use of deadly force uh, might feel wise. And the question is, was well, that legal? And we're going to dive into that today. Uh, first, our sponsors. Today, we have two sponsors. First honorary sponsor is Law Self-Defense. Andrew, I think you're familiar with that company? Indeed, I've heard of them. Yeah, yeah, I think you're associated with them. So Law Self-Defense is Andrew's brand, and you can, of course, learn more at lawofselfdefense.com, and that is one of our honorary sponsors today uh, because we're so grateful to have Andrew give up his time to us today. You can find so many amazing, great products, and your your product library has expanded so much just I mean, thinking just the last, the first time we had you on our podcast, Andrew, you've rolled out so many products. You still, of course, have your core class, uh, what I think you call your level one core class. It's amazing, uh, great, very comprehensive uh, class. You have, of course, your state supplement uh, DVD or, or, or video course, which is meant to be a supplement to that core class. And you have one of those per state. But you've rolled out your self-defense insurance explained course. You've rolled out your defensive property course. Uh, you have also uh, have now quarterly uh, DVDs that have content from all, all the content you produce on a Coolio basis, all your analysis of all the different cases and things like that. And of course, you have something kind of new, if I recall, about rioters and things. We do. In fact, we're writing, running a uh, special combo sale at the moment on both our defensive property course and our newest course, Defense Against Rioters, Looters, and Arsonists. It's 75% off for both those courses. So you get both courses for half the price of either one at the normal price. And I'll put a little comment here. Uh, with the URL. Uh, that, that should have gone out there. Uh, but if, for anyone who's just listening, uh, just point your browser to lawselfdefense.com slash rioters, and you'll be able to access that 75% off sale on those two courses, defensive property and defense against rioters, looters, and arsonists. Uh, sounds like a deal one should not pass up. So get on it, folks. And one last thought before we move on to the next sponsor, and that is that Law of Self-Defense also has a fantastic instructor program, uh, one that I've been through. I'm a graduate of that program, and I found it extremely valuable to really deepen uh, my level of understanding of these legal concepts. And I think to that uh, end, it's really what brought us here today is, is my uh, trying to continue that education. So if you are an instructor who teaches these principles or you just like to really go deep with your level of understanding of this kind of thing, I would encourage you to check that out as well. Our other sponsor today is CCW Safe. We're very uh, grateful and appreciative of the uh, sponsorship we have from CCW Safe. I would encourage you, if you don't already have some sort of uh, coverage, you know, protection uh, relative to legal protection uh, and, and your use of force, I would encourage you to check out CCW Safe. You can go to ccwsafe.com. Uh, there's obviously a lot of companies out there. Many of them are very good, but uh, I, I know that Andrew feels the same way I do. And I think the CCW Safe is today, in my opinion, the best option you have on the market. They are the, the most qualified team to take care of you. And ultimately, in my opinion, they have the best coverage for the money. And use the coupon code CC podcast, all one word, CC podcast to save today when you sign up for an annual membership. All right. We got all that stuff out of the way, which is obviously very important. But now we get into get into the good stuff, Andrew. Indeed. So hit me. What do you got? Okay. So here's how this usually goes down. I'm sitting in, in the classroom. I got all my students. And someone inevitably raises their hand. They say something like, well, you know, they, uh, 
you know, I've just got done explaining, you know, use of force and the five elements of self-defense and all that stuff. And so someone raises their hand, they say, well, that's all good and dandy, but, you know, can I, can I just like threaten someone, you know, with force? Can I just like hold up my gun or point my gun at them or maybe not even display, you know, avert, overtly pointed at them. Maybe I just get it out, just kind of have it ready. Uh, can I do those things? Uh, and when, or, or how can I do them? And as an instructor, this has been a challenging one for me. I now have been teaching classes where I'm have some obligation to explain the law to my students in, in three different States. And the laws seem very nuanced as I try and study them and understand them. So I generally, Brent, Andrew, what I've done is I, I, I err on what I would call the side of caution. And, and so what I generally tell my students, and I, I'm really hoping today that you're going to tell me that I haven't been misleading people for the last decade. But here's what I generally tell my students. I usually say something along these lines. I say, well, here's what I know for sure. Uh, in any situation in which you could use the gun, as we've previously explained, described, and defined, you could also just threaten to use the gun, which might be preferable, right? Where, where, to be clear, and we can talk about tactics and, and you know moral and ethical stuff if we want, uh, but you could just make threats to the gun in any situation in which you definitely could use the gun. You know, if, if if the law allows for you to use the gun, the law definitely allows for you to threaten to use the gun. But in other circumstances, circumstances where we would determine that you could not legally use the gun, right, in, in, in use deadly force in defense of yourself or another, you may not be legally able to make the threat of deadly force. And I kind of leave it at that, which doesn't fully answer the student's question, but it's about as far as I feel confident in saying out loud. And so I'm hoping you and I can shed a little bit more light on that today. How am I doing though at that point? Have I have I set people up for for big trouble? Well, I think you've you've given about as good as answers people uh, as anybody can really because uh, the situation is often you use the word nuanced I would actually say ambiguous. Nuanced implies that, well, if you knew all the factors, there'd be a definite rock-solid answer. Uh, I prefer the word ambiguous because I think there never is a definite rock-solid answer because so much of the answer is a function of how a prosecutor decides to use his discretion in a particular case. And we have no control over that. So that's that's a factor beyond our control that we make ourselves vulnerable to. Um, the moment we get involved in a physical confrontation, I often say the moment you get engaged in that physical confrontation, you've just incurred two risks you were not incurring a moment before. One of them is a physical risk, the risk of dying, getting maimed in that fight. I don't care how good you are with a gun or a knife or your hands or BJJ or whatever. You may be able to reduce that risk of losing the fight pretty close to zero, but it's never zero. There's always some greater than zero risk of losing the physical fight. Well, the same is true of the legal fight. Uh, the moment you get engaged, you've just incurred a greater than zero risk of going to jail for 10 or 20 years or, or perhaps the rest of your life. And you can get education like we do at Law of Self-Defense. You can get good legal representation like we also do at Law of Self-Defense. Uh, and we can get that risk pretty close to zero, but it's never zero. Now, where people tend to get into trouble in these issues is not on the extreme ends of the use of force continuum, right? When there's when we're, when we're at the zero end, there's no threat, nothing's happening. Well, we just go about our day. There's nothing to worry about there. Uh, when it's clearly a an imminent deadly force threat, some guys coming at you feet away with a raised machete, uh, well, there's not a lot of complicated decision-making there. That's clearly an imminent deadly force threat against which you can defend yourself with deadly force. Where people get in trouble is in between those two spectrums, however, and what I call the zone of ambiguity in the middle, where either... Uh, the facts are ambiguous or how the law will be applied is much more ambiguous than at the extreme ends of the spectrum. Mm. So let's, let's, uh, let's get in the nitty gritty quickly and we can, we, I think we'll have to come back out to the 10,000 foot view uh, here in a moment, but just to put this in perspective or context, let's, let me start out with a, a fictitious theoretic scenario, right? I'm in a, the dark, you know, insert here, uh, parking garage, alleyway, whatever, uh, somewhere not in my home. Cause I think that, that, that makes it less, there's less ambiguity, but I'm, I'm in some public place where it's dark and I'm alone and there's not a lot of observation. And, uh, the, the hooded figure is walking toward me hand in pockets, you know, and, and so I can't see what's in their hands. I can't really see them very well. It's dark. 
um, but they're walking toward me. They seem pretty intent on coming directly to where I am. I, I'm not at a destination. There's nothing beyond me. I'm just in the parking garage at my car, and I start, you know, calling out, "Who are you? You know, stay away, get away, stop coming forward." And they keep on, you know, getting closer and closer, and they're they're closing this distance. This is one of those scenarios for me where this kind of starts to apply because. You know, to your point, if they had the machete in hand raised up or they you know, had a gun or a knife or they were shouting, I'm going to slit your throat and bury you where you're you know, in, the, in the desert where you're, no one will find you or you know, whatever, then that would seem uh, like we've, we've probably checked most of the reasonable boxes and, and we, can move, we can move forward and use deadly force. On the flip side, if they were 12 years old and in a you know, Girl Scout uniform and had a, pulling a, a wagon full of cookies – um, then we probably would be on the opposite end of the spectrum where clearly there's no threat here. This, this seems like a reasonable uh, you know, situation where this person is just trying to sell me cookies of which I should definitely buy some because they're delicious. But, but in this scenario in the middle where hands are in pockets and it's dark and they're not saying anything, they're just quietly closing the distance. Well, you know, maybe the average person like, like me may not feel like it's ethically wise yet to start putting holes in people, but I might feel like Getting the gun out is a going to save me time later. Uh, you know, if if I do decide I need to use it, then I don't have to worry about my speed of draw. Uh, so getting it out is going to you know, shortcut some time, and potentially uh, it being displayed or me making you know comments like you know I'm armed or don't make me shoot or whatever you know, thing I may or may not say that might be wise or stupid. Um, that might deescalate the situation and cause this person to stop advancing if they are in fact an innocent party. So this is where it gets really messy for me. You know, what is what are the potential legal ramifications? How do we know if I can do that or not? Right. So I'm going to refer now to uh, what I always call the the five elements of self defense. Hold on one second, though. If anybody listening doesn't know what those five elements are, we have an infographic that we give away for free. It's just a PDF download. Uh, that provides a brief description of these five elements of self-defense. You can get that at lawselfdefense.com slash elements. Doesn't cost a penny, folks. Uh, so I would urge you to point your browser, open up a tab, download lawselfdefense.com slash elements. Because if you don't understand those five elements, you can't understand anything about use of force law. And it'll be somewhat difficult for you to follow even what I'm saying now. But in this scenario, what we're really focused on here are really two primarily of those elements, the element of imminence and the element of proportionality. Imminence has to do with, are you in fact facing a threat that's immediately about to happen? And proportionality has to do with the degree of that threat. Is it merely a non-deadly force threat or is it a deadly force threat? Before you're privileged to actually use force in self-defense, um, use deadly force in self-defense, you have to be facing an imminent deadly force threat. That's the clear-cut scenario, as clear-cut as it gets. That's the guy coming at you with the machete while you're screaming at him to stay back, and he keeps closing proximity. Um, he's got the ability, opportunity. His conduct is consistent with jeopardy, making him an imminent threat, and the nature of the threat is a deadly force threat. So deadly defensive force would be privileged under those circumstances. That's the clear-cut scenario. Where things get more complicated is where either it's unclear if you're facing an imminent threat, there's something scary, but we don't yet know if it meets those uh, conditions of ability, opportunity, jeopardy, which is fundamentally the definition of an imminent threat, and or we're uncertain, we're ambiguous about the degree of threat, whether it's a non-deadly force threat or a deadly force threat. Um, and you mentioned early on that if the conditions are met to be privileged to use deadly force, so you'd be privileged to draw that gun and shoot that guy, well, then you're also privileged to merely threaten deadly force, right? Threatening is a lesser um, implementation of force than the actual use of force. But of course, what people want to be able to do is not just wait until they'd be privileged to shoot before they get their gun out and ready. They want to be able to take incremental steps towards being able to defend themselves. Uh, maybe put their hand on their gun. Maybe bring the gun to a low ready. Maybe put the muzzle on the apparent aggressor. Uh, and those are all lesser degrees of on the force continuum than actually using force. But it becomes much more ambiguous whether or not those would be legally privileged. Now, again, if you would have been privileged to shoot them, you're privileged to merely threaten them with the gun. That's clear cut. After that, it gets more ambiguous. And so we begin to get into circumstances where uh, there are some scenarios in which that mere threat of deadly force would be more easily justified than other scenarios. 
Um, I, I should also be clear, what often happens in lawful self-defense situations is the conditions may well be met for you to pull your gun and actually shoot the bad guy. And you go through that process. And the moment you get the gun out, the bad guy realizes, well, he brought a knife to a gunfight and he turns around and runs away. That's a circumstance in which you would have been privileged to shoot, but you don't want to anymore if there's no longer an imminent threat, because it's almost always in your interest not to use force if you can afford, if you have the luxury of not using that force consistent with safety. So I mentioned there were two circumstances, two scenarios, one in which the, that display of deadly force is more legally defensible than the other. And the more legally defensible scenario is where uh, perhaps the threat's not yet imminent, or perhaps it was imminent, but it stopped being imminent because of the bad guy's reaction to seeing your gun. Um, but if the threat had continued, if it hadn't paused or stopped, it would have been an imminent deadly force threat. So the guy's coming at you with the machete um, and he sees the gun and he stops. Well, you're certainly privileged to maybe, maybe he drops the machete, for example. Um, now he's no longer arguably an imminent deadly force threat because he's been effectively disarmed of the machete. But you still have your gun out. Uh, well, if it would have been lawful a moment before to shoot, it'll still be lawful for you to be threatening. Uh, where people get in trouble, however, is when the threat they're facing, the even if it's an imminent threat they're facing, um, is not one that's deadly force in nature. So it's someone who's perhaps scary, yelling, angry, saying mean things. Maybe he thinks you cut him off back down on the road and he followed you to the parking lot. Now it's a road rage incident standing outside the cars in the parking lot. And that guy can be genuinely scary, but unless there's something about that threat that's deadly force in nature, either he's displaying a weapon or he's much larger or much stronger or apparently has some um, exceptional fighting ability that you lack, or in many cases, he's a, a male and you're a female, all of those are aggravating factors that can make even a barehanded attack be one that qualifies as a deadly force attack. But unless there's something about that threat that could be reasonably perceived as a deadly force threat, that's where normally law-abiding people who've got a concealed carry permit, have a pistol on their person, whip that gun out because they're scared, end up getting charged with something like aggravated assault. Because the problem in that scenario is they would never have been privileged to shoot that guy because that guy's not a deadly force threat. And you can't use deadly defensive force against a non-deadly force threat. Well, if you would never have been privileged to shoot him, well, then it's very questionable whether you're privileged to even threaten him with deadly force in the first place. And the real solution to that tactical dilemma is, as we teach in our classes, make sure that you have a well-diversified self-defense toolbox. Make sure that your only defensive tool is not just the gun. Have a non-deadly means of self-defense. Have pepper spray, have, um, well, Pepper spray is my preference. There's also other things, of course. There's tasers. There's expandable batons. I think those are less optimal, but maybe it's your bare hands. Maybe you trained in martial arts, but have some means of defense other than the gun because the truth is when normal law-abiding people who don't routinely engage in violence get scared and their only defensive tool is a gun, they tend to go to the gun, often under conditions in which it's very questionable whether that display is lawful. And the moment you put someone else in fear of eminent deadly force harm for the purpose of changing their behavior. The moment you put your hand on that gun and say, stay back, that's what we're doing in self-defense, right? We're putting that guy in fear of eminent harm. If he doesn't obey our commands, um, well, that checks all the boxes for aggravated assault with a firearm, which can be good in most jurisdictions for 10 years or 20 years, sometimes longer in prison. Now, of course, you'd have to justify that threat of force as lawful self-defense, but now you find yourself in that legal arena making that legal argument, making that legal fight, and the risk of losing the legal fight is never zero. Uh, we tell all our clients that, look, if we have to put you in front of a jury, uh, there's a good 10, 15% chance you get convicted. I don't care how innocent you are. That's just part of the noise in the system. Uh, innocent people do go to jail. And there are circumstances in which that risk is worth it. If you were otherwise going to die or your family was going to die or get raped or get maimed, but you better make sure that the stakes are worth the, um, what you're fighting for, because those are the risks that you're incurring. So I got a lot of follow-up questions, Andrew. I'm going to start though with just a, a quick point of clarification. You mentioned aggravated assault with a deadly weapon, which in many jurisdictions is minimum 10 years. 
uh, and it's a felony charge, generally speaking. So that there's other implications of, of having a felony conviction. Uh, another one, though, I hear a lot or I see a lot that seems to be, you know, and maybe it's just a jurisdiction issue, but I hear menacing or felony menacing. You know, any comment on the difference between these or if there's any real difference at all? I mean, on a technical legal level, there are differences in terms of the elements that a prosecutor would have to prove. Uh, for example, you um, the crime of assault technically is based on the reasonable perception of the victim. So the victim has mm. to perceive a threat of harm, an imminent threat of harm. That's the definition of assault. You don't have to cause them harm. You don't even have to be really capable of causing harm. So, for example, you could pretend you have a gun. And just put your hand at your waistband, even if you don't have one, and say, stay back, I've got a gun. Well, you don't really. You're not capable of actually shooting him. But if he reasonably believes you and you've put him in fear of eminent deadly force harm, well, that's aggravated assault with a firearm for all practical purposes. Um, menacing is more your state of mind than the victim's mm. state of mind. So it's that you're threatening him with harm. And it's what's in your head that matters. So, for example, you can imagine a scenario in which... Um, the person you threatened uh, fled, but there were witnesses to your conduct, but they fled. Well, if they fled, there may be no evidence of what his state of mind is. He's not around to give a statement. Uh, so the prosecutor might say, well, I don't want to go after an assault charge because we won't be able to prove the state of mind of the victim. Uh, but we can go after a menacing charge because we can reasonably infer the state of mind of the defendant here, the person who made the threat. Yeah. But for all for all practical purposes, it doesn't matter. What matters sure. to us is it's conduct you've engaged in that checks the boxes for a felony use or threat of force charge. Yeah. Um, and folks, when you're facing that kind of charge, uh, you're looking for your lead counsel. I mean, this is not even including if you have someone like me consult on your case. Your lead counsel is going to be looking for a retainer of thirty to fifty thousand dollars. And that's not for trial, folks. That's for pre-trial work. That's to get to that final hearing where the final decision is made whether or not you're going to go to trial. And a hugely successful outcome in that kind of case is that the charges get dismissed. That's an unbelievable win. You don't have to go to trial. You don't have to face that risk of 10 or 20 years in prison and a felony conviction. But guess what, folks? You're still out the 30 to 50 grand. Your lawyer doesn't give that back. He earned that money by getting the charges dismissed. Uh, that's a pretty nice car for most people. Uh, so the just not just the legal risks you're you're incurring that might happen, but the financial risks you will definitely incur are pretty substantial. Yeah, I I was called uh, once uh, to be retained as an expert witness on a felony menacing uh, case. And uh, I'll quickly share it, and then I, I think we'll get back to some other follow-up questions. But this was a, situ a road rage incident where um, you know someone cut off somebody and you know, someone wasn't happy about it and they eventually come to a, constru a construction zone where they're stopped. And so that when a driver gets up, you know, gets out of the car, goes and yells at the other drivers. And in the course of this action, supposedly, um, you know, the, the shirt, you know, came up high and, and these other people were, saw a gun and, and, you know, they felt that they were being threatening with, threatened with it. And, you know, driver goes back to his car, sits down and of course, police catch up arrest. And now we have a felony menacing charge. And, you know, when I talk to defense attorneys, it seems to me that the majority of their casework revolving firearms uh, are, are situations where firearms were not fired. Uh, it, you know, it seems like a majority of the cases that are being handled by defense attorneys, even if they specialize in, you know, for lack of a better word, firearm related uh, criminal defense, they're generally dealing with situations where the gun was never fired, where it was merely used uh, as a threat. And that's where these situations, to me, get to your point, ambiguous. And and I understand the idea of ambiguity. Uh, of, uh, ambiguity because obviously no matter the circumstance whether we're talking about the use of deadly force or the threat of deadly force or not uh, there's still a certain degree of discretion that uh, a, a district attorney and uh, you know and others you know in, involved in the process have to decide whether or not to bring to bring charges but trying to understand you know what are the what are the boundaries you know if, it just feels so much more unclear because when we talk about the use of deadly force, I got the five elements, you know, I can study those. I can go take your course. I can read your book, Andrew. I can do all those things. I can, I can have a certain degree of certainty uh, or a certain degree of understanding, uh, you know, relatively to the lines I can't cross if I'm going to use the gun. But in these other circumstances, it feels a little bit, a little bit uh, scarier. And so I'm going to go back to what you said, because I thought it was really important. You said two situations, and this is how I thought of this. And, and I, this is where my follow-up question comes. 
You mentioned, you know, if I'm displaying the gun uh, in, in a situation where the the five elements had been checked previously, but now the situation has changed. The threat's no longer imminent, or maybe the threat's no longer proportionate because there was five of them and four of his buddies ran off and now he's by himself. Or For whatever reason, the threat is no longer imminent or proportional. Uh the, so now one of those five boxes no longer checked, but I pre I I got the gun out right I I I retrieved it in a moment where the five boxes were checked, and now something's changed, and one of the boxes or more of the boxes has been unchecked. And I still have the gun out. That seems pretty reasonable. I would expect that you know that that would that would seem like you know a still acceptable you know moment when I would have my gun out because it's reasonable to presume that I, I shouldn't put it away immediately because the threat could still change dynamically. But in the opposite of this situation, right, where the threat is not yet imminent or it's not yet clearly proportionate, uh, proportional, and in this moment I have to make a decision, that's where to me this gray area seems to lie where, uh, to your point, maybe if I have a good you know, self-defense toolbox, if I can go hands-on, if I can dis- deploy some sort of less, le- less lethal tool, then I allow uh, the attacker to uh, essentially check the boxes for me, right? If I, you know, if I, you know, d- you know divert, if I escape, if I spray the pepper spray, if I do whatever other thing, and th- that person's behavior continues to escalate, then, you know, they're they're helping me check my boxes of imminence and proportionality, et cetera. But if I don't have those tools in my tool belt, if I am the uh, you know vulnerable human who can't go hands-on, who isn't prepared with a less lethal tool, and I just have to make a decision to you know let this person you know, close this distance and, and put me in a situation where I can't defend myself, or go you know get the gun out and escalate it myself, that seems like an ugly, tough decision. Um, because of these, this legal ambiguity, I, I, right. you know, I don't, I don't know what the advice is there. Well, one of the things we urge people to do in our courses is to put themselves in a position to learn what they need to learn tactically and legally to be able to make um, more confident, better informed decisions in self-defense. And part of that is knowing how to drive the narrative of that self-defense encounter. Uh, there's a variety of things you can do to help drive that narrative. Obviously, only the bad guy gets to choose the time, place, and manner of attack. That's not up to us. We're always reacting to that active aggression. But that doesn't mean we're hopeless. There are things we can do to drive the narrative in our favor. Uh, One, for example, can be verbal commands. If that person is closing on you and making you nervous, start shouting verbal commands for them to stay back. And there's, there's two purposes for verbal commands, really. And the most obvious one, to my mind, is the least important. The most obvious one is, well, maybe they'll obey your verbal commands. Maybe they'll stay back. That's awesome, right? That's fantastic. Maybe they drop the knife or w- whatever it is you're screaming at them to do. But we have no control over whether or not they obey our verbal commands, right? That's up to them. Uh, to me, the most important part of the verbal commands is to strip away some ambiguity. If somebody's scaring you and you're screaming at them to stay back and they continue closing proximity, that's not the conduct of an innocent person. That's conduct consistent with jeopardy, part of that AOJ of imminence. That's conduct consistent with someone who wants to cause you harm. A normal person is not going to keep closing on someone screaming like a lunatic for them to stay back. Even if they're totally law-abiding and you completely misperceive them as a threat, they're still not going to come closer if they're not a threat. They're going to stay away, just like any of us would. Um, the other thing you can do is, like we talked about already, make sure you have that well-diversified toolbox. If you have that pepper spray and you try that first and it doesn't work, if that doesn't neutralize the threat, well, then you have a rationale for why you escalated to deadly force. You tried the pepper spray first and it was ineffective. Uh, the guy fought through it or he was on drugs or for whatever reason that he wasn't Uh, successfully neutralized by the pepper spray. Uh, But if the only option you have is to go to the gun and you do that first, uh, well, then people will begin to wonder, was that really necessary? What's the objective evidence that it was really necessary? Because there's no empty OC canister now. Uh, There's only your own words about what happened Mm -hmm. or maybe other witnesses, or maybe that guy who threatened you was with his friends and now his friends are going to give false testimony uh, about you having been the person who started the fight. Uh, So you want to know enough that you can help 
take affirmative tactical decisions that drive the narrative in your favor. Uh, things like always seeking to retreat if consistent with safety. I don't care if you're in a duty to retreat state or stand your ground state. Folks, if you have a safe opportunity to retreat, that's a fantastic way for law-abiding people to win a fight. We win fights by not having to fight, folks. So if you can retreat consistent with safety for yourself, others you have a duty to protect, take advantage of that. If you try that and it doesn't work, well, now you have another fact that you can articulate about why it was uh, compelling for you to go to deadly defensive force. Seek cover, seek concealment. Again, use those verbal commands. Try if you can, if you have the opportunity to gradually step up through the use of force continuum without first going to the gun as your only option. And you put yourself in a much more defensible place and you have a much more evidence-based, articulable rationale for why you ended up with the gun in hand. We, to me, Andrew, we just nailed it. Like the, the, if someone's listening to this and they have the same question that I started out with, to me, what you just said is the answer. The answer to the question, well, what do I do in this, in this kind of gray area between I know I can use the gun uh, and, and this other situation where I might, I might have to use the gun, but I don't yet think all the, all the boxes can be checked. So what do I do? Well, the answer seems to me to be, you know, Exercise some of these 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 tactical assets, and I'll I'll go through some of the ones you just mentioned in a moment, Andrew. But, but leverage these assets to effectively uh, force the boxes to get checked or dissuade the attack from taking place. Uh, you're you're effectively saying, "Hey, Mister Attacker, you know John Doe guy who wants to hurt me, or I think might want to hurt me. Um, you and I are on the legal fence right now, so I'm going to do some things that force you." to get down off this fence on one side or the other. Right. The I'm way I always it, put it, it is you want to compel that apparent threat to either stop being a threat or to act explicitly, unambiguously consistent with being a threat. So that strips the ambiguity out of the situation. Either they're, they would just happen to have their car parked near yours in that dark parking garage. And that's why they were walking 20 feet behind you the whole way. Or in which case, when you turn around and start yelling at them, they're going to step back if they're not actually an aggressor, or they're going to continue to close on you. And that removes all ambiguity at that, at that point and checks the boxes for your use of defensive force. Yeah. So, so here's, you, you mentioned four things I thought were really critical uh, assets in this, in this toolbox that you have to help strip out that ambiguity, right? To compel them to, uh, as I said, you know, pick a side of the fence. Uh, one was the verbal commands, which I, th- Verbal commands are always a good idea. I, I don't. I don't. I have a hard time believing, thinking of a situation where verbal command would be a bad idea. Sometimes it might not be practical. Yeah, but I, I should be clear that sure. it's not required. There's no right, legal right. requirement that you give a verbal command before. You, so you don't. You don't have to do it. Uh, but it's prudent to do it. It's advantageous to do it if you have the opportunity. Absolutely. Uh, another asset in, the, in that toolbox uh, that you mentioned is uh, seeking a safe means of retreat if possible. In my garage, you know, parking garage scenario, uh, you know, maybe I'm backed into a corner, but but probably not. Maybe I can, you know, move this way, you know, complete opposite end of the garage. Or I can get into my car, perhaps, if that's where my car is parked. Or, you know, I can, I can do it. Step you know, behind a car. Place yeah, a car between car. you and the aggressor. So now yeah, he that, has to come through the car to get you. That was my third one. because And you mentioned this one kind of in passing. So I wanted to emphasize this. And that is this idea of putting cover or concealment right between you and the attacker. This very clearly uh, forces away the ambiguity. Because you know if, I, if I'm putting objects between us and you're going to some effort as the attacker to remove those objects or come around those objects or continue to close distance then that that strips away a ton of ambiguity. If I was on your jury, I'd be like, oh my gosh, like at this point, it's getting pretty evident. Um, and, and then the fourth one that you mentioned was, of course, uh, less lethal options or having other things in your self-defense uh, ability between nothing and the gun. And so, you know, these, these four tips, which I think are critical, and I'll put these in the show notes of the episode so people can really go review these and think about these, the verbal commands, the uh, retreat when safely able, despite you know any legal obligation to do any of these any of these things verbal commands or retreat um, the use of cover and concealment uh, putting objects between you and attacker and of course less lethal options if any this this changes the scenario now with all this in mind Andrew I'm gonna, we're going to do one more fictitious theoretic scenario that uh, I was thinking about as we were preparing for this episode this perhaps a little bit more timely given you know the rioters and all this jazz that's going on right now 
So in this scenario, I, I'm driving, you know, downtown because I have to, I guess, or I forgot that it's, you know, COVID season or whatever. And uh, I get stuck in the, you know, proverbial, you know, mass crowd of people, whatever we want to call this crowd of people. And, you know, I can't really proceed forward without running people over. Can't really, you know, back up. I'm surrounded now and um, I'm getting shouted at, right? People are yelling at me. Uh, some of them seem pretty capable of doing scary things. Maybe even some of them are, you know, have have things that are indicative of maybe them having a gun, like they, they're wearing body armor, or they got, you know, a plate carrier with molly straps on it, or, uh, you know, maybe they straight up just clearly have a gun, you know, in holster or in hand or otherwise, and they're shouting and yelling. But you know, no one has you know broken out windows yet. No one's tried to open my door and pull me out. Um, I'm just unable to move forward. So in this situation. If we tried to check the five boxes, it might be difficult to check. Uh, I, I think certainly imminence is probably there, but proportionality uh, doesn't quite feel yet like we're able to check it necessarily. No one has, uh, or, or one of the two, right? Either proportionality is not there because people are yelling and screaming, but they don't seem uh, capable or willing or intending to cause uh, death or serious bodily injury, or um, imminence isn't there because maybe they seem capable, but they're not yet, you know, breaking windows or banging on my hood with a crowbar or making threats that suggest that they have any intention of doing anything other than, you know, blocking my, my pathway forward. So this is probably to the best of my ability. I'm trying to frame up a theoretic scenario that's similar to our last one. Uh, maybe the only difference here is that I don't have maybe the same toolbox of retreat. Uh, it's, that's just probably not an option I have. I'm kind of just stuck where I am. Um, verbal commands might be slightly more difficult because I'm shouting through glass and things like that. I'm inside my car, uh, less lethal. Also, maybe complicated. You know, deploying like a pepper spray in this scenario might be difficult. My my windows are probably rolled up, etc. Um, and, and so, you know, what what thoughts would you have about about this one, Andrew? Knowing that the principles are all the same, we've just changed some of the context. Yeah, the most important thing is that people are able to think through that scary scary scenario in a well-disciplined, organized way. Uh, the, the law of self-defense does not change just because you're in a rioting or looting or arson situation. The black letter of the law is the same. What's messy, what's complicated is the environment around you. Uh, but it is possible to understand that environment and distill it down to its essential components so you can make sound, legally sound and tactically sound decisions. Um, for example, and I mentioned earlier our newest course, Lawful Defense Against Rioters, Looters, and Arsonists. We spend a couple hours stepping through all of this in that in that course. So again, I would encourage people who are really interested in understanding this stuff well uh, to point their browser to lawofselfdefense.com slash rioters and take advantage of that sale we currently have on that course. But it's very important, for example, to distinguish between uh, peaceful protesters, obstructive protesters. These would be protesters now blocking a road, for example, but not otherwise threatening harm. Um, violent protesters, looters, arsonists, these are all distinct categories of people that represent distinct levels of threat, if they represent any threat at all. And they each need to be treated somewhat differently in terms of your use of force options. Uh, but you're never going to learn this in the heat of the moment when it's happening. You have to have thought this through ahead of time, uh, including both what the environment's likely to be like and how it's likely to impact your tactical and legal options. Um, it's, it's kind of hard to step through just in a, a podcast environment like this. Like I said, we, we've developed a whole course for it. The bottom line is you're going to have to meet the same five elements of self-defense in that scenario as you would be if you were being subject to an armed robbery or being subject to a rape attempt uh, in a parking garage. Uh, those five letters, uh, five elements of self-defense law don't change. You just have to be able to apply them to that more hectic, chaotic environment. And by the way, folks, both in this kind of rioting, looting scenario, as well as a, a more traditional armed robbery, rape attempt kind of scenario, one of the tools you have to have is not just things like pepper spray or a gun or having uh, decided that you'll retreat if possible, consistent with safety, but to have prepared your mind for making decisions under stress, for having thought through these scenarios beforehand. When you read about these things in the newspapers, well, I guess nobody reads newspapers anymore, but you see these things uh, on the internet, these stories, mentally put yourself in those people's position. What would I do in this circumstance and how would my conduct be consistent or inconsistent with what I'm legally privileged to do? And 
this is how pilots prepare for emergencies in flight, right? They, they read about other pilots' mistakes, and they train on what if a system goes down? What are the five immediate action steps I need to take? Well, the only reason to be able, uh, the only way to be able to respond effectively uh, in such a scenario is to have trained and thought it through before ahead of time. If you don't do that, you'll never be able to respond effectively in the heat of the moment. If that's the first time your brain is being exposed to that scenario. And there's no reason it has to be, folks, because what I'm talking about now is it's free. It's like mental dry firing. It doesn't cost a penny. Uh, you need, of course, to have the knowledge necessary to understand what would be tactically sound and legally sound in a particular circumstance. But once you've acquired that knowledge, just like once you've acquired a gun, you can dry fire to your heart's content and you ought to be mentally dry firing these scenarios as well. Yeah. I think one of the things, hopefully the biggest things that, that, you know, relevant, I guess, to this conversation today that you get when you mentally prepare and you imagine these scenarios and you ask yourself, what would I do is hopefully you're getting a real good clarity of what are the lines that have to be crossed before action is warranted because patience can be really important in these situations. I think that, um, as we talked about earlier, trying to remove, to compel this person to force out the ambiguity, to pick a side of the fence, that requires sometimes just time. If, if this crowd of people, uh, which may or may not be clear to me if they're violent protesters or rioters or what they are, um, if this crowd of people surrounded my car, then I, I got to remember that time is on my side. And, you know, like at this point in this very moment where they're just all you know shouting and I'm not entirely even sure what they're saying and they're just, no one's even touching my car at this point in time. Well, the correct answer is probably no action is necessary because nothing's happened yet to compel me to, to choose. You know, the, there's, there's still a lot of ambiguity. And I think that the, the, the big lesson for me is understanding that my job in those scenarios when there is ambiguity, is to figure out how I remove it. It's to figure out how I get rid of it. Uh, sometimes that just means time. Sometimes it means these other things we talked about, the verbal commands, uh, you know, using cover, retreating where able, um, you know, all, all, any of these given things. But it doesn't mean that, oh, people are surrounding my car. I read a news story last week that somebody got yanked out of a car and beat to a pulp, so I better get my gun out now. Um, it, sometimes it means patience. And, and there's and, and unrecognizing, because I've thought about this in the head, I've, I've put myself in this scenario mentally before, recognizing that I still have too much ambiguity. In this moment, there's still too many things that are unclear to me. Um, I, I either need to wait uh, mentally prepare, certainly, and, and do all those things, but either wait and or take other action that helps me remove the the ambiguity to, to force the clarity necessary to know what the right action is next. And is that, do you think I'm barking up the right tree, Andrew? Am I, am I getting the right things out of this conversation? Absolutely. Well, we all say patience is a virtue, right? And particularly in this context, I mean, say you're dealing with what appears to be purely obstructive protesters, right? So they're not, they're stepping on peaceful protesters because they're preventing you from going about your way. They're blocking the roadway. They're surrounding your car. You're stuck now. There's no place to go. Um, absent either an external threat. So their conduct escalates to one in which now they're actually threatening harm as opposed to simply obstructing your way, which by the way is unlawful. Right. In many jurisdictions, it's a, it's a form of unlawful imprisonment. It could actually be felonious conduct. But nevertheless, the fight you don't get into is the fight you won. Right. So if you can avoid, be patient, consistent with safety, uh, avoid getting into a physical confrontation, that's always going to be to your advantage. Now, there could be internal reasons why you can't afford to be patient. Say, for example, you have someone in the car who's a diabetic and they're going into insulin shock. Uh, there could be some kind of medical emergency on your part where you can't afford to just sit there. You have to try to move your car through the crowd. But that's what you would want to have present before you start doing that kind of more aggressive conduct. It's not just, oh, you know, I'm going to miss my TV show tonight if I don't get home in time. It's got to be some actual emergency in your vehicle uh, to justify beginning to use your car, even if slowly, to push your way through a crowd because of the risk that that conduct alone will escalate the crowd to uh, – uh, provoke the crowd to more violent conduct. At the same time, there are clear decision lines that fundamentally change the nature of the scenario that you're in. 
Uh, if people are just being obstructive, that's one thing. If they're actually trying to breach your vehicle, well, that's another thing entirely. That vehicle is your protection, and no one breaches your vehicle uh, because they have your best intentions in mind. That's conduct clearly consistent with jeopardy, clearly consistent with an imminent threat. And for better or worse, when you're surrounded by a mob, the disparity of numbers alone is often enough to qualify them as a deadly force threat. Uh, we just, many of us, I'm sure, saw the video from over the weekend in Portland uh, where a guy was uh, basically pulled out of his pickup truck and beaten in the street until he was kicked in the head unconscious. Um, and folks, you get kicked in the head unconscious, uh, you may not be dead, uh, but you're never the same. Uh, I've often felt that uh, th- that kind of traumatic brain injury that's inflicted by that kind of beating should be treated much like a murder. Because if you've ever known anyone who suffered a traumatic brain injury, they're not the same person anymore. That person they were is gone. I would suggest for all practical purposes, they're dead. What we have now is a different person. Uh, but in any case, that obviously changed everything. When they pulled him out of his truck, that's a completely different dynamic than when he was still in the vehicle. So you need to kind of think through these scenarios in that kind of stepwise fashion. What are the key decision points in terms of that you know, confrontation, the level of confrontation that may be involved in dealing with peaceful protesters, obstructive protesters, looters, rioters, arsonists, and plan out ahead of time what you're prepared to do at each of those levels consistent with safety. Perfect. Um, we have one comment I want, uh, from a live viewer, and, and uh, a, we've had several legal questions come in via the, the comments. Uh, some may not be perfectly relevant to today's discussion, but one I do want to discuss, and then we'll probably be out of time. Um, but a comment that I think is important here is that uh, Diane says, I'm starting to wonder if it's even worth carrying a gun for self-protection. And, and Andrew, I don't think we can end our conversation and leave anyone feeling that way. Um, I think, Diane, it's important to understand that the purpose of this conversation is to dive into something that otherwise might be unclear to people, um, but we're, we're almost presenting it in a way that might, might overly portray how common this kind of situation would be or how potentially legally damning it might be. And we're doing that on purpose in order to really break it down and illustrate the point. Uh, Andrew, I, I think, you know, what I would say to Diane, I'll let you, you, you add your comment is that uh, generally speaking, what I have found to be true almost without question is that when you conduct yourself in a way that's ethical and moral and in your best interest of survival, that the law is almost always on your side. Then that is, it's rarely not a matchup. So if, if you, you know, in my, in my opinion, if you just will conduct yourself in a way that's reasonable, ethical, moral, and consistent with you doing what you think is necessary to survive, the law is probably going to be on your side. Uh, but understanding these boundaries is, is not meant to scare you. It's meant to empower you. Andrew, what are, what are your thoughts for Diane? Well, it's actually a comment I hear a lot because, of course, the the possible legal consequences of using a gun defensively but maybe outside the bounds of the law are potentially severe. Like I said, they could be 10, 20 years in prison, uh, maybe more. And so I always urge people to keep in mind that, and again, as I said earlier, the, the risk of conviction is never zero. It's always more than zero. I don't care how innocent your use of force was. So I always urge people to consider under what circumstances is it worth incurring that risk? Because there aren't many of those, right? There's, there aren't many circumstances that are worth incurring a risk of 10 or 20 years in prison, uh, even if you're innocent happening to get convicted in a trial. But there are some, right? It's I'd rather be wrongfully convicted and sentenced to 10 or 20 years in prison than be dead, than be maimed, than have my wife dead or my kids dead or raped. Once you get beyond that category, then it's pretty hard to imagine what's worth risking 10 or 20 years in prison. But those things do exist, and they do happen to hundreds of thousands of people every year. I carry a gun for personal protection, have my whole life. I'm not saying everybody should. That's a personal decision you have to make. But the reason I carry a gun is so literally I'm hard to kill. My wife is hard to kill. My kids are hard to kill. After that, I could hardly care less what other people do. Uh, as far as me having a gun is concerned, uh, I'm only concerned myself for those uh, most dire of circumstances. And if I'm facing that most dire circumstance, yeah, I want a gun because when you, you know, in those circumstances, a gun is about the only thing that's going to help you. Yeah. Diane, I would leave you with this last thought. And that is that if you bring a gun, if you have one on you, you can choose to not use it. 
but if you don't have it with you, you can't use it if you if you think it's necessary. So having it with you at least gives you the choice. Um, this is an interesting question from TM that I think is very relevant to our topic today. He says, how does brandishing pepper spray or threat threatening the use of pepper spray expose potential uh, legal issues? So in other words, I think that, Andrew, if you can quickly clarify that you know, your, your educational material, your understanding and teaching of the law, this whole thing that you call the law of self-defense, it doesn't necessarily apply to guns. And, and help, help Tim understand this idea of proportionality and, and how that works. Sure. So, yeah, of course, uh, the way we teach the law of self-defense, it's actually tool independent. Uh, the, the law doesn't particularly care what instrument you use for self-defense, except that it cares a great deal about whether or not what you're using is deadly force in nature or non-deadly force in nature. That's what the law cares about. Um, the advantage of having a non-deadly means of, de- of self-defense is that the legal threat, uh, the legal standard you have to meet is so much lower. Uh, Before you can go to a gun in self-defense, you have to be facing a deadly force threat, a a threat capable, readily capable of causing you death or serious bodily injury. The threshold for being able to use non-deadly self-defense is that you're facing any degree of physical harm, any. That's pretty low. Um, Simply someone shoving you, for example, is an unlawful use of force by them, not deadly in nature, but non-deadly in nature, and one you can defend yourself against, not with a gun, but with something non-deadly defensive in nature, like pepper spray. So the reason you want the option to go to the non-deadly to force like a pepper spray is because you're able to deploy that at a much lower degree of threat than you would otherwise have to justify before you could go to a gun. Uh, Another issue, of course, is We have a human issue here in terms of prosecutors. Prosecutors are, um, in some respects, engaged in, it's almost like a a sport. Um, They're professionally graded on their win-loss record, and they differentiate between kind of playing in the minor leagues and playing in the major leagues. And what they really want is wins in the major leagues, and the major leagues are felony offenses. Well, if we're talking about deadly defensive force, if you pull that gun out, well, then we're in the realm of felony offenses. And if they can get a conviction on you for that felony offense, that's a huge major league win for them. That's very good for the career. That's very attractive, gets them interested. It's like blood in the water to a shark. On the other hand, if all you did was deploy non-deadly force, well, that's minor league. And what they could get you for criminally is very modest. And it's much less interesting to them in terms of simply being a human being who happens to be a prosecutor. One of our goals in choosing our defensive options, both tactically and legally, is to look as uninteresting to a prosecutor as possible. Remember, whether or not they choose to bring charges is almost entirely in their discretion. Uh, They have almost unlimited discretion in whether or not you're going to go to trial or not. So you want to look as uninteresting to them as possible, as boring, unexciting to them as possible. You do not want to look like an attractive target for prosecution, because if you do, you're much more likely to end up at trial, all other factors being equal, than if you manage to keep yourself looking uninteresting. Fantastic. One more here that we're going to tackle, and then we're going to wrap up our conversation here today. Um, The question asked by Joshua uh, is, I think, the tip of the iceberg. So I'm going to, I'm going to read Josh's comment here and then I'm going to phrase the question differently. But Josh said, if someone has an illness such as a respiratory issue and you hit them with pepper spray and cause something to flare up, boom, is that a legal issue? And I think that Andrew, the, the broader question here that I want to have you discuss is understanding that what matters is your reasonable perception of the elements of the situation, not the factual reality of the of the elements, right? Whether or not the person had a gun, or if it was just their finger in their in their pocket, uh, whether or not this person um, really was capable of killing you, or whether or not you just reasonably perceived that they were able. You know, can you can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. What's controlling, at least from a, a criminal law perspective, so we're talking criminal liability here, is your reasonable perceptions of events. So you need to have perceived a threat of whatever degree, and your perception has to be reasonable, but it does not have to be accurate. We're not required to make perfect decisions in self-defense. We're required to make reasonable decisions in self-defense. And if, for example, to use Joshua's example, Uh, Pepper spray is widely accepted and trained in the self-defense and law enforcement community as being a less than lethal use of force. 
well, you're allowed to treat it as a less than lethal use of force and use it appropriate in that circumstance. And if it turns out the person you used it against, and if you're using it lawfully, it's because the person you use it against is threatening you with harm, right? So they're the aggressor in this conflict. Uh, if it turns out they have some unique physical um, impairment that makes them unusually susceptible to some higher degree of harm from pepper spray, that's on them. They triggered those events. Uh, conversely, if someone's threatening you with what appears to be a gun, and it turns out after the fact to have been a toy gun, but a reasonable person, as you did, would have perceived it as a real gun, you're privileged to treat it as if it were the real gun you perceived it to be as opposed to a toy. Um, the, the laws always worked that way. The, the standard is the reasonable perception of events. Now, that's for criminal liability. In terms of civil liability, folks, we live in America. It's a highly litigious society. Everything's a legal issue. Just assume you're going to be sued. Uh, again, you're only supposed to be using defensive force anyway if you're a threat of physical harm, perhaps deadly, maiming physical harm. If that's the case, you have to save yourself from that harm and you worry about any kind of litigation after the fact. The most you can do for yourself, of course, is to know where the legal boundaries are, stay as well inside them as possible. And that's the maximum you can do to limit your legal exposure, either criminally or uh, civilly. Yeah, absolutely. Perfect. Thank you, Andrew. We've had a handful of other really good legal questions come in today in the comments, but they're a little bit outside the scope of today's discussion and we're basically out of time. So I apologize to those of you who didn't get to your questions. We will uh, stay tuned to the podcast. Those are questions that we have addressed in the past and probably will address again in the future, perhaps with Andrew's uh, input and help. So please subscribe if you haven't already to the Concealed Carry podcast. You can do that uh, by going to our Facebook page, YouTube page and uh, you know, subscribing and turning on notifications or certainly from any anywhere where podcasts are listened to from Spotify to iTunes to Google Play, uh, you know, whatever app you prefer to get your music and or podcasts, you can probably search Concealed Carry Podcast there and subscribe. Uh, in a minute, we're going to get to our weekly giveaway. But Andrew, I wanted to give an opportunity to you for any kind of final comments uh, before we wrap up this conversation about this gray area where you can make threats with a gun. Uh, well, I think we've covered it as much as we can without taking a second hour to dive into further details. I did just post up uh, the link to our own Facebook page here at Facebook. So we have regular content there. People can, if they like this kind of content, they can get more exposure to law of self-defense there, obviously at no cost, whatever. Uh, and if they really like it, they might consider becoming a law of self-defense member, uh, which is uh, not free, but inexpensive, about 33 cents a day. They can learn more about that at lawofselfdefense.com. So guys, don't forget to check out lawofselfdefense.com. There's tons of different options there. If you just want to put your foot in the water, you know, you can get Andrew's book for as little as 10 bucks on a, on a Kindle and you can go read it there. In fact, there's, if I'm not mistaken, from time to time, Andrew, you often have a, a offer where people can get uh, your principal's book for free if they just pay shipping. So go to his website, go into the menu and search for those options and get educated on this stuff today. Share this episode with other people you know who carry a gun, who need to understand uh, how the law applies in these kind of circumstances. Uh, really important that you do that. And of course, thank you to CCW Safe, our other sponsor of today's episode. You can learn more and join CCW Safe at ccwsafe.com and use the, the coupon code CCPODCAST to save on that today. So with that, guys, remember, train right, train often, and train safe so you can fight hard, fight fast, and fight true. Take care. I forgot to do our giveaway, so we're going to do that right now. So, Andrew, I don't know if you know this, but we do a weekly giveaway on our on our podcast, and people do not need to be live to uh, with us to, to be eligible. What you do have to do is go to concealedcarry.com forward slash podcast prize and this is a revolving door meaning you have to sign up every week so each each week each week we eliminate all the entries from the past and we start it from scratch and so today let's see here we are giving away a concealed carry tactical pen and we've had quite a few people enter and we appreciate everyone who's entered and again remember guys every single week go to concealedcarry.com forward slash podcast prize and enter to win all right the winner Today, this week of our pen that we're giving away is Mark 
last name starts with an L, Mark L. You have a Gmail email address and also the number 39 in your email address. So that's the best I can do, I think, to keep it keep it private. So Mark L with 39 in your email address at gmail.com. You are the winner of our tactical pen. Next week, guys, we're going to give away Andrew's DVD, the top 10 things you probably don't know about self-defense law. I think that's what it's called, right, Andrew? Did I get it right? Indeed, that's it. There you go. So we're giving away that DVD next week. So make sure you go to concealedcarry.com forward slash podcast prize and you enter between today and Monday of next week and you might win Andrew's DVD. Now, with that then, remember, train right, train often, and train safe so you can fight hard, fight fast, and fight true. Take care, everyone. A reminder that laws vary from place to place, and we encourage listeners to seek local legal advice to understand applicable laws. The Concealed Carry Podcast, Concealed Carry Inc., ConcealedCarry.com, and their affiliates strive to share insights and stories about firearm-related incidents and laws, but things could be different where you live, or laws may have changed by the time you listen to this. We cannot be held liable for your actions based on the information shared in this podcast.